Let's go. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. We're going to read all the way through to verse 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. As we um, come to this portion in Hebrews, last week we dealt with the warning, the, the third warning, which is that you should uh, stay faithful lest you become apostate, uh, or lest you apostatize. Now, apostatize means to turn your back on uh, the faith, to reject Christ after having tasted. And we examined that closely last week and saw that um, the the author of Hebrews is giving us a very real picture of life. He's not dealing in high theological thought, though the things he discusses are high theological thought. He's not dealing in um, nuanced argumentation, though what he does is nuanced argumentation. Instead, he's dealing with the very real and transparent reality of life and life here together. So, as we come to this text, you need to understand that this is still part of the argument he was giving you before. And that argument is found, the, the, the principal understanding of that argument is found right here in chapter 6, verse 3. You jump back up to chapter 6, verse 3. You remember his little side comment here? And we, this we will do if God permits. The entire discussion of your perseverance in the faith and your ability to stay steadfast and immovable in Christ is predicated on that phrase. It's all founded on the idea that God has to do it. Which is great. Great news for us. Because if I had to do it, nothing. But God has to do it. 
if God permits, if God permits. So we jump down to verse 13 here, the continuation of this discussion where he has called you to live righteously. He's called you to imitate those who through faith came before us. And so immediately he jumps to Abraham. Romans 5, uh, Romans 4 and 5, we see Abraham as the founder of faith, the patriarch of faith. Remember that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness before circumcision was given. If circumcision is a mark of Jews, remember faith is something a little greater. Well, a lot greater. Faith is something more. It was given to Abraham that he would be counted righteous before God because of faith, before he received the promise of circumcision. For indeed, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, we come to this passage and we wonder here, how can we be certain that our faith will remain. You mean to tell me that in order for my faith to remain, I have to hinge even the sustaining of that faith on God. I have to, I have to hinge even the sustaining of that on God? That is difficult to wrap my mind around. And yet, that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And here we go to his explanation for why you can trust that God is going to secure this. So, let's go. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Just to put that in context, when people make promises, they tend to say, I... You know, you've, you've heard it I, on my mother's grave. They, they'll promise things that are bizarre. You know, on, on all that I own, I promise you. Like, they're, they're promising on things of great value. On the life, on my own life, I promise I will take care of these things. So when you state a promise, you are promising on something of value. In other words, if there was a legal contract in which you had to pay a debt, you would say, I will take this loan, I will pay it back, and here's my promise on promise of my house. You get my house if I don't pay this loan back. But that's, that's the exchange, that's the promise. You're taking something of great collateral value, something of extreme value, and you're, you're holding it up as promissory note. You get this. If I don't do it. Now, you get my life if I don't do it. Let's, let's put it that way. I promise this and you get my life if I don't do it. So when God makes his promise to Abraham, he promises based on himself because there's nothing greater. Let's review the story, right? Abraham... It's in chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham uh, makes this covenant with God. God takes Abraham, tells him, cut these animals in half and lay them out on the road. 
lay them out here on the on this field, road, whatever. Just imagine you're told by God, cut a bunch of animals in half, put the halves on each side. So this is a Hebrew custom. It's actually a Canaanite custom where you would make a covenant by cutting an animal in half. The two of you would take hands and you'd walk through it together as a physical, visible, tangible symbol that if either one of us breaks this covenant, we're going to be the animal torn in half. That's what you were saying. You held hands, you walked through it, do-do-do, and then you both looked back and you realized, if I break this covenant, I'm going to be torn in half like this. This is what happens. So, Abraham cuts the animals, separates them, and then God tells him, all right, hang out for a while and wait. So he is staring at dead carcasses for hours. And we know he's staring for hours because the Bible tells us he has to drive away the birds that are coming to eat the carcasses. So he's waiting for God to show him the covenant, to, show, to walk through the covenant with him. God says, do this. He cuts them. He leaves them out on the road. And he goes, I should have waited longer to cut those things in half. That was a lot of work. Now they smell bad. And the things are coming. The birds are coming. I keep having to drive them away. And God, the Bible says, God caused the sleep to fall over Abram. And Abram sees God in a vision. He sees a pillar of smoke in the form of a smoking pot. A pillar of fire in the form of a torch. And those two things go through the bodies, separated. First thing that Abraham would have thought is, I, wasn't I supposed to go through? This covenant between you and me, wasn't I supposed to go through? And what God did was he took his pillar of smoke and pillar of fire, the character of God that went with them in the wilderness, that went before them in Exodus, that was in front of them, the common emblem of God bringing salvation to people. He took that common image of himself and walked through the bodies himself. So God makes this covenant with Abraham and he swears upon his own body. He says, if this covenant is broken by you, or by me, this is going to happen to me. And Abraham is left out of the consequence. God swears by himself. He says, I will do it. I will do it. Because there is no one greater. This is not a covenant between equals. <laughs> this is not a covenant between equals. You are not equal to God. I don't care how many decisions you get to make in a day. You're not equal to God. God is the greatest He's the greatest. There is nothing higher, nothing more powerful, nothing more indescribable. God is so great that we can't even describe who He is. We can only describe who He's not. He's not me. He's not you. He is too great for us to fathom. Indeed, it's one of the problems we have with imagery of God is that when we see an image, it's just inadequate. We just can't quite 
get our minds around him. So God promises to Abraham that if anything happens to this covenant on your end or my end, may this happen to me. And guess what? Abraham broke the covenant. Abraham's people broke the covenant. We broke the covenant. And Jesus on the cross tears himself in half for you, for me, to make payment. To make payment for your sins that you would be reconciled to him. God promises based on his own character. That's incredible. What if you went to a mortgage company and said, I promise I will pay it back. And they said, well, what do you have for collateral? And you said, well, there's nothing greater than myself. Do you, I mean, you see me? Give me the papers. No. no. Mortgage loan officer is going to go, no. No, that's funny. No. What else do you have? Right? God makes a covenant and says, look at me, I'm, I'm the guarantee. I am. And all we can do in response is go, yes, you are. All Abraham can do in response is go, yeah, yeah, okay, you are. So God makes a covenant with Abraham. Think about what this means, that God, who the great I am, but just ponder that for a second, that his name is I exist. He's so great, he defies being named. Some people say that the, the name Yahweh, the name he gives Moses, is breathing. It's just breathing marks in the Masoretic text. <sighs> breathe out, breathe in. That's Yahweh. It's this mark of breath, the very breath or existence of things. When Moses asks him, who shall I say sent me? God goes, Breath? Life itself sent you? The power of life? I don't know what to tell you, Moses. I just am. And Moses has to go, All right, here we go. It's amazing. God is so great, he swears on his own nature, on himself. So, what can this mean for us? Just think about that. If God is this great, which he is, nothing can possibly defeat God's plan. There is not something you can do to override God. Just think about it for a minute. There is not something you can do to override God. He will accomplish his plan. Christian... When we look around at the world today, it seems an awful lot like we're losing. You're not. You're not. I read the end of the book. We win. Because our master has already won. You're just in a waiting period for him to show up. 
You're just having to drive off the birds while he waits to arrive. He is winning. He has won already. You're not losing. Second of our perseverance is derived from if the Lord permits. Think about that. If your perseverance in the faith is derived from the truth that the Lord God is the one who sustains your faith. Look, He's got it. It's under His control. He's going to bring divine appointments. He's going he's to bring opportunities. He's going to bring reminders and refreshers. Sometimes you're going to have to drive off birds for a while while you wait for the pot and the, and the torch to show up in your life. But He's going to bring it. The covenant has been made with you. Jesus Christ has died on the cross and has risen again. You have been given faith. God will sustain it, for He has brought it to you. Remember that Abraham still had to wait years before he saw the results of the promises of God. He had to wait years before he saw the result of the promises of God. Indeed, you might have to wait a little bit too. Yet, in verse 15, he obtained it. Abraham obtained it. God has not left his people. God has not left you. He is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Rather, he is patient. Indeed, we worship a God who we will continue to follow if he permits. Verse 14 says, God says, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham obtained this promise. And he says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So there's two things going on here. One, the promise, the swearing by, that's the promise, and the oath. These two things are God has given to Abraham, and he is, uh, the author of Hebrews is telling you, we can trust him because his promise and his oath are based on his character. So then he's going to jump into some truths about God's character. So when God desired to show, this is verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God wanted to show the unchangeable character of his purpose. This is a truth about God. I, the Lord, am not like man. I do not change. God says that of himself. We call this immutable. He does not change. He is God ever unchanging, always constant, always faithful. He is not a God that changes his mind, nor is he a God that changes on whims. Not only is he greater than everything, unsurpassed in everything, he also is unchanging in everything. 
So consider that for a moment. And I want you to consider it in light of the Old Testament. Think about the Hebrews. So this allows us, by the way, when we do Old Testament studies, this allows us to just separate our own experience a little bit and get an objective, a semi-objective view of God. You're never, by the way, by nature of being human, we are never completely objective. It's, not, it's an impossibility for us. We are uh, confined to circumstance. There is, we cannot be fully objective. The only fully objective being is God himself. And that's because he's the only one with the power to separate himself from everything else, if he wants. You, on the other hand, don't have that power, though you might be called in as a more objective, comparatively speaking, a more objective bystander or moderator. You are never fully objective. But God is so great and so vast that he can be objective. He can step back and judge objectively everything. That makes sense? Okay. Now, God is unsurpassed in everything. That's the first thing he said. He makes the promise based on his own character of being unsurpassed. Then he secures that promise by making an oath that is unchanging. Now, just think about this for a minute. God's oath is so unchanging that he was enacting it before he gave it. Here's what I mean. In Genesis chapter 3, God takes Adam and Eve out of the garden. He, they sin against God. We sin against God as, as humanity. And God kicks them out of the garden. And in kicking them out of the garden, before he does, he covers them in robes as a symbol of future righteousness that will cover people. Of the future righteousness of God that will cover people. He covers them in robes and he sends them out into the world. And then it says this phrase, he put an angel to guard the way to the tree of life. There's always been a way. There's always been one way. It's always been protected. It's always been Christ. That way has always been secured by God. Life was always secured. It's a fun Hebrew poetry thing going on there, and I wish that I could write it up on a board for you and, and diagram it, but most of you would fall asleep when I got to the, the, the Vav uh, conjugations. Just trust me, it's cool if you're a nerdy Hebrew guy, like I am. So, he secures the way to the tree of life. God secures the way to the tree of life. He covers them in robes. From chapter 3 of Genesis, he doesn't make a covenant at all until maybe Noah. And you know what that one is. the rainbow in the sky. He states that he would never destroy the earth again, the entire earth again, by water. And this is a sign of his covenant. His bow now facing his bow, arrow, bow and arrow, now faces heaven, not earth. It's in the sky pointing up. God has been enacting this oath from the beginning. He is so great that he has been doing this since the beginning of time. Indeed, before the foundations of the earth, you were predestined in love. 
Ephesians chapter 2. God has been since the beginning. He is so unchanging that the covenant that's given in chapter 15 was enacted upon and held to scrutiny in creation. Then you move forward and you see, so that's the reverse. Now go forward from Abraham and you see the people of Israel constantly failing. You see the people of Israel constantly failing, constantly rejecting God, constantly turning their backs on His command, constantly walking the opposite direction, and God constantly pulling them back and protecting them and preserving them, even to the point where they go into exile. And what does God say? I will preserve for myself a remnant. I will preserve for myself a remnant who have not turned their backs on me or bowed the knee to another God. Ezekiel turns to God, or has this story where God gives him this vision and he turns and sees God and he says, what's happening? And God says, don't worry, Ezekiel, I have marked for myself a remnant. And he tells the angel, go through and mark on the foreheads all of mine. And everyone else I'm going I'm to exile. And I'll save mine out of the exile. They'll come back. And God preserves His covenant with His people. You go forward all the way up to the prophets and you see the kings fail over and over and over. You know, the king's failing is funny because his one job was to read the law out loud. Did you know that? He has one job. Make a copy of the law Read it out loud to the people every year. Everything else is easily easy if you do that. That's what God tells the king to do. God tells him every year, your job, go get the law, make a copy of it, read it out loud to the people. Five books of the Bible. Read it out loud to the people, close it, obey what it says. Sit. That's what you're supposed to do, all you kings. You know how many kings do that? None. There's one guy that tries and he dies right before it's done. Josiah, last king. He finds the book of the law, which they had lost. How do you lose the one thing you're supposed to keep? How do you, it's the one thing. You're supposed to keep that one book. That's it. Your whole job is dependent on keeping that one book. And you lost it? They lose the book of the law at the end of the book of, of Second Kings. Josiah finds it, he's 26 years old, he finds it, he starts to obey it, starts to lead people back to the king, to the king of kings, and there's war that breaks out and he dies because it's just too late. But God preserves his people, and he preserves them, keeps them, and he holds them, and he raises them up, and then you've got this slew of prophets during the exile who are calling out to God's people to repent and return and and have faith and and stand with God and keep hold of Him and keep hold fast, hold fast to the hope that's to come. And for 400 years there's silence between the last prophet and Matthew. For 400 years there seems to be no speaking of God. 
And then a baby is born in a barn. And that baby is the Messiah. And all of the heavens awake and go nuts. And God fulfills what He promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. All the way back there, God's oath was unchanging. I will do this. This is an unchanging God. He does not change. He does not move according to the whims of fury, though there is fury. He does not move according to the whims of passion, though there is passion. He is an unchanging God who holds fast to his oath and his promises by nature of who he is. So, when we think about what we are struggling with, when we think about the things that are laid out before us that seem difficult for us to grasp, when we struggle with doubt and fear, hear this. God secures His promises by Himself. And your faith is secured in Jesus. By Jesus' hand. What does he say? God has, I know all those who God has given to me, and none can snatch them from my hand. That none includes you. You are held fast in the hand of Jesus Christ. You are held fast in the hand of Jesus Christ. So, he, he speaks here of the unchangeable character of his, purchase, of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, two unchangeable things, so vastly unchangeable are they that we see evidences of them before they were given. That's how greatly unchangeable they are. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now, I want you to understand, God can't lie. He can't sin. God cannot violate God's character. So you get these, you get these questions. This is a side note. But you get these questions that are just kind of goofy philosophical questions. If God can make anything, can he make a boulder so big he can't lift it? No, God can't stop being God. That's it. No, he can't stop being God. That's what God cannot do. One thing, he can't not be God. That's He is God. He can't not be God. And you get the philosophical, well, if he stopped being God, then he wouldn't be God. Then it turns dumb. Don't even, it's pointless. Don't argue those things. That's a, that's a juvenile argument. And when a philosopher tries to make those things, they're just trying to sound smart. Problem is that they sound like a four-year-old. Because that's the logic of a four-year-old. Right? God cannot cease to be God. God is God. He will always be God. He cannot cease to be God. Even Jesus 
when he came in the flesh, he's asked, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God. The Word was God. Jesus is God. Even when he put on flesh, he's God. Can't cease. It's who he is. So by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. God can't lie. He doesn't lie. He's the God of truth. He is truth itself. It's greater than we can imagine. And here he says, it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now we lose this in our culture, this idea of fleeing for refuge. We lose this in our culture because this is a clear reference to cities of refuge in Numbers 35. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a provision made for people who murdered. Either in the heat of passion or by accident. If you murdered somebody, you could run to one of these cities of refuge. And it was kind of like a game. I mean, a twisted, grown-up, kind of evil modern movie game, but still, game. And by evil, I mean harsh, not wicked. So, it, it was dark, right? So, you, in the heat of passion, took somebody's life. You could run to one of these cities, and when you got to the city, you could claim it as a city of refuge. And there were specific cities that you could run to. And if you got to that city, you claimed it as a city of refuge, the person who uh, owed who you owed a blood debt to, the next of kin for the person that you, that you murdered, would come to the city, there would be some legal disputes, but as long as you didn't leave the city, you were free to live. Your life was not taken from you in the city, as long as the high priest lived. That's a key point. As long as the high priest was alive and could make atonement for your sins, you were in the city, you were safe. You didn't, have to, you didn't have to worry. They, they couldn't kill you. You might have to pay reparations. There might be a legal dispute that would happen. But you were safe in the city. City of refuge. Murderer could run to a city of refuge and ask for mercy. And the people of God were supposed to act with the character of God and grant mercy. People of God were supposed to act with the character of God and grant mercy. So, now, read that passage again. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We, Murderers who deserve death have fled for refuge. We murderers who deserve death have fled for refuge. Where? To Jesus. We have fled for refuge to our hope and as long as our high priest lives, we are safe. Do you remember what happens in the story, right? Jesus crucified, died, 
resurrected, and where to go. He didn't die again. He ascended into the clouds to live for eternity. Scars and all. As long as our high priest lives, the oath is secure. Salvation is secured as long as he's alive. How long is Jesus alive? Forever. And ever. And ever. You can't outlast Jesus. Your sin can't outlast Jesus. Your wickedness can't outrun Jesus. He lives forever. As long as the high priest is alive, you are safe. You take care and hold fast to him. You have this encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, that hope is called Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, when he opens his letter, he tells you that your hope is in Jesus Christ. The hope that we hold fast to is Jesus. And just a note, how do you hold fast to Jesus? You hold fast to the Word of God. You grab tight of it, you read it. You hold fast to the Word of God in community. You grab tight of it together. You hold fast to the Word of God individually. You grab tight of it on your own. You put it in your heart. You put it in your mind. You feed on it. It becomes your breath. Indeed, all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for training, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be approved in every good work. He says we, we run to this refuge in Jesus, and we hold fast to the encouragement set before us, and then he goes to talk about Jesus. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Jesus as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Jesus as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The second thing, we've got a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Third, he went as a forerunner. And then last here, having become a high priest, forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we talked about that several sermons ago. Melchizedek and how Jesus is not uh, of the lineage of man or Aaron. He doesn't suffer the same things that they do. He is the great high priest according to the righteous king of heaven. Peace. Melchizedek. So, here, Jesus is lastly articulated in these four things. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Remember earlier, the second warning in the book of Hebrews. Do you remember what it was? Stay in the middle. And it was this image of a boat that has currents pulling to the left and the right, and it has to stay in the middle. Stay in the middle. Stay faithful to focus your eyes on Jesus. Don't be pulled about by every other wind. Instead, stay in the middle. Least we drift off. Stay in the middle. Focus on Jesus. Concentrate your life 
on Christ and knowing Him and go faithfully towards Him. That's the first one. And here's the deal. We have an anchor that holds us there. We have an anchor that holds us there in Jesus. When you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your perseverance is dependent on His faithfulness. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? We rest in Him, staying in the middle, knowing that there's an anchor holding us in place. There's an anchor for our soul holding us in place. Second, it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The second thing about our hope here is that Jesus has gone inside the curtain for us. There was a veil that separated you from God. There was a veil that separated you from God. And the Gospels tell us that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, that veil, that curtain, was torn from top to bottom. Making entrance into the very presence of God possible for all who trust in Jesus Christ. You have, one, an anchor that holds you straight. Two, you have opportunity to go before the presence of God because of what Jesus has already done. Because His oath and His promise are secured. Three, Jesus has gone there as a forerunner. Look at verse 20. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Forerunners are people who run in front to make way for people behind. Not only do you have access to God now, but you're supposed to. I think often we get the idea that we have access. Okay, yeah, the curtain's torn, but I'm not actually supposed to go in there or be in the presence of God. That's dangerous. Yes, it is. God is big, terrifying, and scary. It is dangerous. But you're supposed to be there. It's where you're supposed to go. Into the presence of God. And why are you supposed to go there? Because Jesus ran in there in front of you and made a way for you to go into. Not only do you have access, but you're invited there. You're invited into the presence of God. You're invited into His presence. So, finally here, Jesus, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So, First, you have this anchor that's going to hold you fast. Second, you have access. The veil has been torn. Third, you are supposed to run in to the presence of God. All your flaws, all your failings, all that you are. Just as I am, I come. You go before the Lord just as you are because He has made you clean. With all your self, you are invited into the presence of God. Oh, just for a moment of application, if you, when you sit down at home by yourself and you open your Bible, do you realize that you are going before the presence of God? In a real sense, He is present 
in the room. When you come into a church service or a worship service or a worship night or a gathering of believers for Bible study or even for dinner at a coffee table or even a meeting with another believer, do you realize that you are being invited into the presence of God? These are sacred moments. I joke that every time you eat a meal with a Christian, it's an act of worship. It's half-joking. It seems like in the Bible, every time there's a meal, it's important. And they eat a lot. So, you are invited in the presence of God when you sit at someone's table. Don't take it lightly. Rejoice in it. That you have access and are, and are invited in because the forerunner has run before you. And finally, he is a priest by the order of Melchizedek. How long are we free? How long are we free? As long as the high priest lives. That should be on a t-shirt. Free as long as the high priest lives. Jesus lives forever. Forever. You are free. Forever.